Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Sobs or the Russians, if, if a bit of if equipment didn't work, like a, a, a tank ground or something, they would just throw it out the top and, and they're not bothered to recover it straight away. So again, this was Don Dust Russ. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. In October of 2022, I was asked by the West Pennines Military Vehicle Trust to moderate a question and answer session with a number of Bricksmiths veterans. Attending were drivers Neil Walton, Pete Curran, Dave Collins and Kev Smith, plus Sandy Saxton Warren, Joint Operations and Weapons, Mike Hill, Tour Officer, Mike Corcoran, Weapons, and Dave Butler, Senior Tour Officer. It was an amazing afternoon of reminiscing about their experiences and viewing the amazing collections they had from that time. My good friend Colin Deiter helped with the complex recording of this session, but a quick note that the audio is not up to the usual quality of Cold War conversations due to background noise, but I think the events and activities described definitely make it worth listening to. Thank you. The Cold War conversation continues in our vibrant Facebook discussion group and on Twitter. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook and we're at Cold War Pod on Twitter. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Aid Brandt, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially, quite simply because it's the best history podcast out there, and I want to make sure it continues. Keep going, Ian, and thank you. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome seven Briggsmith veterans to our Cold War conversation. Out of the area, with the imagery, very excited, got on the phone, which we could do, we could call the mission house and pass on information, um, and told them... We, we, we thought we had something interesting. Anyway, come back, photographs are on the desk, debriefing, we got SS-21. And it wasn't for a couple of days 
that somebody looked at them again and said, but hang on, SS21 has three axles, this has four. And we realized we actually had a brand new equipment seen for the first time in, in East Germany. So there's a, there's a bit of a, a danger to, to keeping information quiet. Uh, we, we were an experienced crew, but, but you know, that business of expectancy, where you think you know what you're seeing, can sometimes come back and bite you in the ass. Now, there's a follow-on to this story. The, the photo interpreters and, and photogrammetrists were very excited about the imagery. And uh, we actually got color imagery, which was even better, because color had not, not long been in the mission. And their only concern was, well, you know, you, you've got a succession of pictures. You have the, the water drive going and so on. But, you know, what we really need to be certain about performing photogrammetric work on this to get its dimensions is for somebody to go back and measure a couple of known objects. And there happened to be um, a, a broken tree in the picture, which, which they said, if you could just go back and um, you know, get the measurement between that tree and, and this one, we'd be delighted. So a week later, just the same crew went back and the area was still occupied, um, not to the same extent. But, but we, we went in very cautiously and got those measurements. And to our delight, I, I think two or three months later, Jarek actually sent us the model they had made from the imagery and the measurements um, to, to show off the equipment. And Mike, Mike will remember us very well. And that's, that's that story. Um, but the images are, are available. I like to think of what made us go and measure the distance between two trees. It was a very tense moment getting out of the vehicle in that area to go and make the measurement, I can tell you. You mentioned a couple of interesting things there, because in passing you, you said, of course, they'll be taking rockings off vehicles and things like that. And those were actually tremendously important in several different ways. First of all, there was the big mark, the side number. And that is what was giving you the orbit, to a lesser extent, the TOE, the Tables Organization equivalent, for what the Russians were. Was it 30, was it 33 vehicles, third battalion, things like that? But actually, sometimes total stencil numbers on the side were equally important because that would give you production numbers. You would have an idea of when it was made, where it was made, how many of them were made, and you would fill that picture up over quite a few years, sometimes 10, 15 years, and you would actually get good ideas of how many SS-21s, SS-23s, EF-2s had actually been made when they started producing. And of course, Derek was stealing a water biscuit at different locations, but on relatively fuzzy images. And there was no way they could get site numbers and uh, production markers and big reliability. The other thing we used to push for us through our regular maturity, push them for, was stereo imaging. So we said, so, could you just have moved a couple of feet to one side and then take another kilogram? And I mentioned the water drive, and of course it was great. And stereo imaging is such a difference to the quality. You get things like the depth of the cool arches out of it. And one of the big things, uh, tremendously important, but physically quite small, 
that chemo, it's fine. Then kept me as he yet. Was I taking a little pain with all the about four inches across on the top of the front deck, just off the siding glassing. And that we knew and we were expecting was going to be a glow-ups terminal from the Russian GPS system, which is called Coronas. And we'd never really seen it. And it was only once we got stereo with it, they could actually pick this thing out. We knew it was there because we were hearing the broadcasts through some of our colleagues that were working in wrong places. But we'd never actually seen it fitted uh, to any equivalent setting. And of course, now GPS is cost. Another simple one that came out that this late Sarchitophology was as on various train sightings we had been seeing um, as the tank battalions, this motor rifle that we had to tank battalions. And it was always six, usually M212s, sometimes slight failure in some ways. And then a couple of command vehicles, then another six. And of course, 18 of those would make up battalion. And looking at the stereo imagery of these Arctic ones, you can see that one of them in every six had something unusual on it. The tongue was a very slightly different shape. And eventually we decided, we've got to figure out what this is. Obviously, something out there, it's not just the way the ions are controlled, they put it all on the top of the, of the equipment. And somebody on one of the trains uh, managed to cut through uh, the canvas on the correct uh, guff. Yet some photographs of it in the dark. Couldn't really see what they were photographing themselves. And brought it back and said, we got that thing in the last four What it turned out to be was a laser rangefinder. And this was in the days again, laser rangefinders were relatively new. But of course, the difference that that made to an anti-tank battery retaliated the scrub is that suddenly, very accurately, they can tell how far away in what positions tanks are. So that made a huge uh, equipment difference to what that could For something that was only a few inches long, really, it was quite important. The stereo imagery, taking imagery, covert and things like that, was hugely important, and yet we're all actually quite physically small basically. And uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's worth mentioning that uh, Stereo, stereo capture was taught on the special duties course that, uh, that everybody went, everybody attended. <laughs> it wasn't always forefront of your mind. You're quite right, Mike. <laughs> but you, you've touched on GPS, and it, in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, um, we did through the Gulf War and so on, and, and GPS have been issued at limited numbers. It, it was not carried routinely in the mission. And uh, in my time, 86, 89, only a, a few GPS units began to come in, and they were generally issued, I think, to, to the Air Force tours, who wanted to be certain of their positions when they were assessing certain um, aerial tactics. And it was a very sensitive equipment. You know, they, they, nobody wanted to, to be known that we had them, because before that, and I, can, I think mentioned the trip counters, you know, and the fact that you, you were driving very much like a rally driver in many instances. The... Uh, the, the vehicles had, had no benefit of satellite uh, navigation in, in the way that we do today, we, we take for granted. So, you know, the, the, the counter in the vehicle was not the one you see today on, on your dashboard. It, it was a, actually a rally counter down to, I think, a one-meter accuracy. Mm -hmm. And 
on, on visits to prepare for working tours, people would actually use these to gain very accurate measurements of distances between intersections, for example, so that at night, when the um, you know, uh, late night imaging was, was poor and so on, you could use the distances traveled between particular junctions to, to tremendous effect to put yourself in the right position. And you know, that, that was the case as much for finding your sleeping places as, as anything else. But it was occasionally tactically useful too. Yeah. Uh, again, talking of, talking of sensitivity, uh, and, and it really goes back to the thermal imager, if you remember why. Yeah, it was back then in the late ages, it was state of the art. Uh, yes. Yeah. Taking out. And I remember John Fogan saying to me on one occasion, uh, I'm not sure who the tour officer was, we were going out to do some thermal imagery, and he said to me, on no account must this equipment fall into enemy hands. I don't care what you have to do to it, you know, but you must make sure that if you think you're going to be taken, you need to destroy it so that uh, we don't give the opposition, you know, the chance to, uh, uh, to get it back. So, uh, it, it was, and, and again, it's the Armour Corps guy, you know, on the, on the team. You know, I know you too well how, how important it was as a tank gunner. You know, I was one of those in the early days, you know, to be able to recognise so we didn't get the blue on blue, you know, and uh, mm. so, you know, I, I, I remember having that conversation with you, Dave, in a vehicle, in a tour vehicle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, good stuff, you know. And of course, we did it, you know, the beauty of TI, of course, was you could do it in the dark as well as in daylight as well. And you just need to, to, uh, to, to see the kit, you know, through the NVGs and then, and then get the thermal. And, and uh, the technique I used to use, of course, mine was stop winding the windows down, but open the top hatch and go out the top. So at least if you were going to be attacked, you had a chance. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. to reach out for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. But um, from, from the sublime and thermal imaging, can we take it back to the slightly ridiculous? And it, it's not because Mike Corker would be horrified if you say that, but um, I don't know whether anybody's mentioned yet the box bunny guys. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And you, you, the public would think it just crazy that you, you spend an awful lot of time and effort identifying particular types of cargo, well, not cargo, but the working vehicles, military vehicles. And we actually had in the mission uh, a thing called the Box Body Guide, which had a, attempted, at least I think probably succeeded, in identifying every possible combination of, of box sizes. And by box, I mean like a, like a panel van with, with, with chamfers, and bumps and lumps and the number of windows, the number of doors that the, the vehicle had sat on. They, they all were given, I think it was a five figure designator. Or, uh, yeah, K5 eventually. Well, I mean, uh, a lot of people might have heard the old aircraft recognition thing wet, wings, engine, fuselage, and tail. Well, the, the, the box body guide was the same thing for, for box body vehicles. And of course, it was immensely important because. Some box bodies had, had very, very important connotations. Uh, you know, the, the, the Tenapelli were the sort of commandants, military police vehicles, which, which were the blue lights with rotten down columns. But if you saw a, a box body vehicle, a very rare one, which was associated with missile command or you know, strategic communications, 
that was a horse of a different colour. And, uh, you know, it, it, these things were all, the, the, all the extraordinary details were, were incredibly important. Uh, and it, it really came into it. So in, towards the end of the mission, the Russians were introducing, the Russians, specifically the Russians, were introducing lots of brand new equipment. Also, been looking fairly good on the surface. Um, back in the late 70s, when I was out at Six Company, our tech drawing section now in development what became known as the World War Day. And to show the whole thought in the eyes, when these new Russian vehicles came in, the copper stays, copper wall, when I, which were fairly enormous, and I think certainly three axles, possibly more, I haven't ever heard But in fact, they slotted right in, in the right place in the box body guides, and you could identify fairly quickly what they were for, and there's things like Air Defence Command Force and such like, Division Command Force, stuff like that, right up to Army Line. Uh, and we eventually, uh, I didn't get involved in it, people down at Six Company had to eventually issue our own new series of what were the uh, books covering the copper seeds, but the readout system for them was exactly the same. And of course, because the Russians exported those equipments all over the world, particularly to the Middle East, but also to places like India and such like. Those guys became pretty much de rigueur in most embassies if you wanted to start either identifying with the Roman wars. And certainly I did an embassy to her and the embassy I had been in. Although it wasn't Russian, we used exactly the same guides for the box releases and completely identifying her. Um, and it was an example of how something started off relatively simple, suddenly became hugely enforcing, really, really useful. The detail of intelligence should you guess Cool, okay, I think um, on, the, um, on the intelligence side as well, with the PI pictures were taken of exercise areas, didn't you used to send people in to take mouldings as well, and the tyres, <coughs> the tyres in the sites as well, and then they could work out the size and the weight of the vehicle and, and things like that as well. Um, well, just what the grammar to it. I never actually took any of those myself. Maybe Michael did. I think it's... Uh, uh, more, about, more about stealing anything you could get that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they, they always wanted hard evidence of, uh, of a lot of stuff. So, you know, what you could, you just got, you know, you brought back. That's, that's my... No. things <laughs> 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 We came back in the office, like, you know. I think well, it's... I, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's more deeper myself, or, or, or really at you, but I think not, not many years before I got to the mission, um, somebody picked up a, a piece of what was almost certainly ammunition on a, on a range and, and brought it back to the mission and caused complete chaos because the thing was live. And uh, you, you, you can imagine, you, you, you got it in the mission offices back back in, in West Berlin, and you... It's pretty sensitive in all probability, but you've got to get in the EOD guys to look at it. So you know, suddenly you've got to talk about clearing around and finding one who's reliable and all the rest. Before it goes back, it's all interesting stuff. I have a happy memory of that because uh, when I arrived in the mission in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, I went into the weapons office and with this pile of stuff on a small child fallen in one corner, and I said to my predecessor, What's that? 
And this is how it's just jumped that the guys brought my hunger up here, you know. Bear in mind that even in the weapons office, we work too, they can't junk ourselves occasionally. And after I've been in there a couple of months, I thought, I should really have a look underneath that and see what's there. And most of the stuff, I mean, yeah, I was stamped on it. Uh, and I saved most, and that was the thing that was a little bit worrying. And we thought, take my advice there, we'll get an A to have a look at this. And you did actually clear most of Berlin block for about two days. And it was more embarrassing than anything else. And one or two bits of it were actually taking bike out into East Germany and dumped there again. Well, it was easier. <laughs> hey, Mike, Mike, you know, remember this? So we have to armor on the side of the turret. <laughs> I think that would be, a, 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 it won't call it question time, but uh, just to give this an intro, I, I had every intention of doing this because I thought yeah, even being in Brixmas myself, I wasn't on that tour with Dave at the time. Yeah, and it, it's quite a, a, a sort of. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Famous incident within Bricksmiths at the time where uh, these little boxes started to appear on tanks. And I'm not going to steal Dave's thunder, but I think it's worthy of mention the old story as to how uh, Dave yeah, actually. Uh, you know, come come to uh, collect one of those boxes. So off you go, Dave. I, I think more the question is, everybody, is why is I why have I still got one? Yeah, uh, exactly. I, got, I, got, I got that at the end, uh, but no, you're right. It was 1987, and um, we got tasking through various channels to try and get hold of an explosive reactive oil box off of a TNT. I think I'm right in saying, Mike, and you might. Is. The Americans already got one of a T-64, Bravo. Uh, they, we weren't sure at the time whether it was the same boxes or whatever. Uh, and so we were tasked with getting a, a, an explosive tractor or an ERA box off of a T-80, which was the latest tank in, to be introduced into East Germany. So, as again, as the armour Corps guy, I was given the task of, um, of putting together a plan. And so... The first idea we came up with was uh, to, uh, 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 most of the tank, most of the exercise went on in what we call the permanently restricted areas, or PRA, where we weren't allowed to go officially. Uh, but the, in order for the, the tanks to like, get back to their bases, when they've been on the training areas, they had to come out. And one in particular ramp was on the side of the Letzlinger Hyder, where the actual ramp, where they all got onto the, onto the floor, Go back to their units was was in uh, at, at this particular base, and we knew the T80s were in there. And so, uh, so the plan was that when they all got on their on their uh, flatbeds, the tanks, we would climb on the train as it was pulling out and, and steal one of these boxes off the side. Now that sounds fairly easy when you say it quickly, but of course, the problem of things we didn't know. We didn't know, for instance, that each one of these boxes is held on by two nuts. Uh, and so we weren't sure what the, uh, what the size of the nut was. And so uh, what we didn't want to do was get on the tank, on the track, on the flatbed, and find that we couldn't actually get 
get the thing off because we didn't know the, the nut size. So we went down in the pot stand and found a, a spanner from an ex-German shop which had four different nut size measurements on it. And we, I think we've done some close-up photography and we had an idea what it was, but we didn't really know. So I had the spanner and the idea was so we're going to climb on the train our vehicle was going to leave where we were and go up the road about 10 kilometres. We would work on getting the box off and then as it came round another bend, the train, we would jump off, get back on the vehicle. That was the plan. Uh, and we even practised it, not getting on the train, but going into PR around on this particular bend where we knew the train would have to slow down a bit and get on. So that was fine. Then, subsequently, about a few days later, I was up in, in uh, a place called the Libra Tank Range uh, over on the, I think it was a Polish border, over in the east of, of East Germany. And I was watching T-80 firing on the move uh, on, on the Ranger. So we watched it all day. And then at night, when they finished, as usual, the tanks would pull off the range and go back to our holding area. And our SOP, standard operational procedure, was always to go onto the range and just scavenge for whatever we could find, whether it was... Letters they'd written home and they got the toilet and wiped the bombs on it, right through to any munitions. For some curious reason, the Sovs or the Russians, if, if a bit of if equipment didn't work, like a, a, a tank ground or something, they would just throw it out the top and, and then not bother to recover it straight away. So again, this was gold dust trust. Anyway, we went on to the firing area after they'd all left and I was just walking along through these tank pits where they were and I saw Sticking out of it, out of the, out of the sand, just a little fracture of corner and green stuff. And so I bent down and I picked it up. And as I did, I pulled one of these out of the sand. And uh, we subsequently concluded that what happened was, uh, as the T80 pulled into the firing area, the, the vibration of the tank firing there had loosened one of the nuts. And in fact, one of these has a, has like a, a, a curve in it and the other one it's a complete nut. And so what happened is it shook off the tank, fallen on the ground, and as the tank backed out of the tank uh, pit, it had pushed it into the sand. Luckily, it was soft sand. So the thing was almost intact. But more importantly, so I knew what I would found. It was a bit like winning the lottery. Suddenly I heard all this music around me. There wasn't any music, but you know, I knew I had it. I put it in my East Sherman stack. And, and just strolled back to the vehicle and uh, the tour officer, bless him, he's dead now, uh, and the driver, um, who's still alive. So we went off then to a rail crossing, which we always do, have a cup of tea and just talk about what we found and all the rest of it. And I had my stack in the front of the car and I kept the ERN box in the bottom of it and I think the tour officer had found some ammunition and I went look at that. Anyway, and I just said, oh, by the way, I think I've got an ERA box. I'm going down. Well, you can imagine in the vehicle, you know, that there was like, you know, I won't, I won't swear too much on, on air, but it was, it was colourful, let's just say that. And, and the tour officer said, well, we've got to go straight back to this because this is like the find of the century. And I said, no, 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 because we knew the narcs or the secret police were, were following us. I said, we don't want to do anything out of the unusual. And also, we had a, and I don't know if you mentioned Tom or yet, but we had a dance to do that night. And I was particularly keen to do dance for some reason. And so I said, no, no we'll just stay out for the next two days and, uh, and then go back and hand it in. So we did that and went back. 
And I think we got back on a Friday night that it was it was one of my best mates leaving dues and we were all in the club and the brigadier was in that, John Foley in that. And I think I'd say, Mike, were you the were you the tech guy? You were and Mark Weldon, wasn't it, I think? Anyway, Ian Passing. Oh, Ian Passing, yeah. And I, and I remember, and I said to the other two, we went up to handing out our booty that we found. And I said, look, let's just, let's just make it, you know, let's get some humour out of this. So we'll go in, we'll put all our other stuff on the counter. I'll keep the ERA box in the sack. Then that will turn to walk out and I'll go, oh, by the way, I've got an ERA box and put that. Um, you know, I just, I just remember my, you know, the, the, the look on your face and most of it. And I think, I think actually, by the time we got to the club for the farewell drinks for Bromley, um, I think you'd already run John Foley at Tom because he got me to one side and said, well done, Dave. That's brilliant. And I think, so in terms of intelligence, I think he was a, a fairly momentous one in 1987. I was very lucky and privileged and, and the GOC, the General Officer Commanding at that time in Berlin, was a guy called Patrick Brookin, who was a fifth royal in the Skilling Dragoon Guard, which was my regiment. And, and he used to get a, a monthly briefing, I think, from the mission, didn't he? And, um, and I remember him, him saying to me, him saying to me, in no uncertain terms, that, um, that, uh, he was so proud. And, and years afterwards, he said to me, you know, Dave, I dined out on that story of my man from my regiment getting the ERA box off the T80. You know, he said, just a wonderful thing. And, and yeah, and I must admit, looking at Ukraine over the last six or seven months, I've been drooling at the map and going out there with my spanner. They go, eight years later, I was uh, driven at the Defence Academy there and they got a T62. ERA, that they got off the Conan Rates or something. Anyway, I went there because when I made a film about Christmas, I wanted an ERA box. So I went down there and they said, well, you're going to have one hour's day. So I said, well, can I try my spanner? <laughs> so I, 30 odd years later, I found out that the spanner we got would have worked had we had to use Plan A. So um, it was all very neatly tied up. Anyway, that's the story, guys. It's a good story. And they presented me with this and said, you might as well keep this. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. But, uh, you know, it's too heavy to put on the wall. But they are quite heavy. Oh, uh, what's that? This one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea. Actually, when, we, when they got this back to it, I think it was, so I got up on the Friday, or the, and it was back in the diplomatic bag on the Saturday morning, I think. And when they took it apart at Melbourne, was, they found out that actually tripled the thickness of the armour of the T-80 tank because of the explosive plates inside. And so the, the West End went completely into warp speed to develop a tandem warhead. And I think, if I'm right, you know, part of that result was the javelin that's having so much success in Ukraine because it's got the tandem warhead on it. One knocks the box off and the other, the, the subsequent bolt then goes through. So... Every time I see the salt tank knocked out in Ukraine, I do take some some small yeah. gratification from the you know that yeah, I yeah. might set them all rolling with this. Anyway, that's it, guys. Brilliant story. <laughs> it's good though. That Operation Tomahawk that claims on the map there as well was the rubbish dump one. So there was one at Beale Estate there. 
that um, I remember going to with two of the boys. And um, and it's like vision goal. We should go around really early in the morning. And Belitz was a hospital, wasn't it? And the lads were in, the socks were in Afghan at the time. And so they were shipping back there injured to Belitz Hospital. And so one night we were out there. It's our job as a, as a tour driver to watch for security as well while the guys are out doing their, their stuff. So I'm looking around for the, the NVGs and this arm was thrown on the front of the G-Wacket. Instead of, oh, I was like, oh, And these two guys who remain nameless, like they're laughing at uh, special people. And, and they're <laughs> laughing their, their head off at that. At that. And, uh, I'd crack myself with visibility out. And, uh, and like, Steve, like, um, uh, Kevin was saying, you know, they had the rubber boots and, and the gloves. I've got a pair of gloves. I haven't bought a pair today. Yeah. So I've got those gloves. And that was, uh, because there were so many needles and everything in, in the, in the rubbish dump that they were getting. And it was infected and everything, wasn't it? Porky. And then, um, at the end, um, well, we were there for it became joint intelligence service. They kind of told us that the chief says, right, now you can go on a cultural tour and you can borrow a camera if you like, but if you get caught, then you're on your own. Sort of thing. <laughs> you know, so straight down to Magdeburg, I was looking for SA12. Well, I thought, I have to admit, I ran out of fuel as well with my wife and the pregnant wife in the car, which wasn't a good thing for Brixmas operator to do. Um, should have filled up in, in Berlin before it went. Um, only a half a K down the road, but I had a bit of a walk. So, yeah, yeah it was quite, quite fun at the time. But so, sometimes, you know, the, the casual observations that actually, years later, were really quite enforcing. There was a, a casual observation of a thing called an ERS force team, which is essentially a tanker truck with some shivers fitted on long arms on it. And it was a signature equipment for a chemical defence battalion. And quite a few years later, something identical, essentially, was in the ARS forces. But it was seen in both in Iraq. And the concern, therefore, was that, of course, the Iraqis were getting ready to use chemical weapons. And the Americans were getting extremely excited about this. Uh, but of course, one of the things Brixmas had seen them using this thing for was simply giving the troops in the field a warm shower, should they need a shower, to force down. And we were able to say to the Americans, well, look, be very careful about identifying this as definitely chem or chem bio. It could be that they're simply using it as a shower facility. And of course, when you then look at the rest of the TONE and the ORPAT side of it, you could see the numbers that were being used, and it was simply that. All they were doing was using it as a way of washing. And we were able to take some of the heat out of the Cambio situation for that particular part of the reactive wind. So casual observations were just as important. Although, like, uh, I remember being at the Robex sidings, just north of Potsdam, one day, again, with the same guys, the same guys who were the team that we got the ERA box, and we saw an ARS-14 filling up from a railway tanker, one of these massive railway tankers. And I said to John, which are also at the time, you know, we've got to come back and get a sample of this, you know, uh, before this tanker leaves. Because, you know, it was a high... It, it was a chemical weapons <coughs> equipment, as you know, so it was high high collection priority. Anyway, we wait until about two o'clock the next morning, crept back into the sidings, parked the vehicle about a hundred meters away. John and I got off 
I mean, flying around this time, and said, oh, sorry. And I said, well, I'm going to need time to get, get a sample in. So I went back to the mission house, uh, for a, we went back for a coffee or something. We were on the local tour around Potsdam, so we could do that. And, um, at the time, the advertisement on the telly, uh, was for Schweppes, uh, tonic water, and it was Schweppes, you know, you know who. So the city gave me, you know, said, okay, I'll take a Schweppes bottle with me. So I, I emptied it out, washed it out to make sure there's no cost contamination. And about 50 meters of paracord, we climbed up on the top of this vehicle in the dead of the night and lifted the lid. And of course, it was being, you know, rusty, made an enormous sort of. <laughs> anyway, the John and I thought, and the first thing that hit us, of course, was the fumes from this thing. And, and you know, you talk about health and safety. You know, all we had was our REF flying gloves, you know, our, you know, or our gloves assassin. Our Lord Barnum ones, you know, and, um, and, and the first thing it hit, so we turned our heads away, and, and I dropped my shrek bottle in, got her the squash, brought it up, put a bit of rag in the top, took it back, and uh, then wound its way back to the UK, the diplomat bag, or however these things used to get back. And, uh, and the intelligent community, um, confirmed that it was trichloroethylene. <laughs> Uh, okay, which certainly wasn't used for showers, okay, and it was one of the first, uh, and we didn't know that the socks were using this as a decontaminant uh, at the time, apparently. And the other thing they confirmed, of course, was that um, it was highly carcinogenic. Mm. And then, of course, a few years later, John went and died. And so the first thing I, uh, and it was at the time that Peter was writing the thing about, about you know, our, our bar for the for the GSM. And so, you know, our bank was seized, what we did was. And so I, I managed to call Jack Coroner, uh, John's, because I was quite keen to find out what John died. You know, because had he had died of lung cancer or something like that, then, you know, it could have, you know, not that I find it ridiculous when I'm going to go, but, you know, I like to think about, you know, so anyway, I did all that. And, uh, luckily for me, they confirmed that John died of natural causes. So, um, but it just shows how, how the things, you know, go on with what we did then and the risk we took, really, without, without even thinking about, really, our own health and safety, you know, just for the sake of gathering intelligence. Dave, just, uh, who, who, just for the record, what, what was John's surname? What was his... Uh... I guess he's dead now, so we need... Uh, John Biles. Um, what else? Uh, he was a bigger officer. Uh, yeah. okay. And uh, he was the guy with me on the ERA box as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> John really wet himself. I can never, always remember his face in the vehicle. And I don't know, I've heard so many swear words in about one second come out of his mouth from a full DR way bumps out. But he's a great one, good guy. And, um, you know, he's sad like this, you know, vice Corporate um, like that, you sent me out to a, a big, massive, deep mine, open mine, fake some samples. We took some mud. Hope you okay. <laughs> <laughs> That was really cool. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to ask yourself, when, when, why did Dave send you instead of himself? So I think um, one of the themes that's emerging in, in, in this discussion is how well prepared mission crews really were. And I'll give you an example of uh, how much better we were than the Russians we were, we were working against. Dave mentioned a, a railway sightings. And... Uh, there was a famous railway sightings in the local area near Berlin called Satko. 
Yeah. But it was well known as a place through which equipments would pass coming or going from the Potsdam garrison and, and the, the garrisons north of Berlin. So we, we, we always paid particular attention to that in the local. We, we drove and run through and so on. And ordinarily, it, 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 it had no restrictions placed upon him. So one day, we, um, we, we, we came across the signings, and then there were roads that ran either, either uh, end, you know, end to end. And not, not a big signings, you know, maybe half a dozen tracks and so on. And there were mission restriction signs. And if, if people don't know what those are, they're the, the three or four language um, signs, there's one there, that, that told look, that the Russians intended to prevent missions passing. Uh, in other words, they, they were stating that they didn't want you to go beyond those signs, there was something sensitive. Well, it was clearly a temporary nature. So as, as, as things turned out, I thought, well, hell with that, you know, it, it's not been here before, it's not going to be here now, we're going to go out of the vehicle, knocked it over and into the ditch, and we proceeded. Only well, to have the driver say to me, boss, there's an armored vehicle behind us. I thought, well, that's more interesting. And then, as we looked ahead, we saw another armored vehicle coming towards us. This is a single lane track. But then the the the, the <coughs> wonderful point here is that because we knew the sighting so well, and in fact only days before we rehearsed leaving this track on, on an, an unapproved exit. In, in other words, uh, 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 down through a ditch into farmland that allowed us to escape such an ambush as this. So we used that, much to the frustration of the Russians. But a few days later, so a couple of days before we'd done a rehearsal, we escaped the trap. A couple of days later, I'm, I'm called by the chief who asked me to accompany him on a protest trip to um, the Soviet External Relations Bureau, the Russians in Potsdam who managed the, the, the three Allied missions. And to, to my enormous embarrassment, I had to sit and interpret for the chief, who was receiving a protest about William, who had been photographed and they gave us the pictures of a tour officer throwing away a mission restrictions thing, and then trespassing on, on sacred ground. Uh, Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. So, you know, you've got to be careful. Steve Harrison, who I think was due to be with us today, but, but for some reason isn't, uh, has got his Stasi file, which is the file the East German secret police kept on mission members. And he revealed, I think Peter Williams has said the same thing, he, he revealed that, to his astonishment, the East Germans in particular had been much more capable of conducting covert surveillance than we imagined. And, and he's aware in his file of an occasion at one point where they were listening to the conversation in the vehicle and reported it quite accurately. So, yeah, being photographed, pushing a mission aside, is, uh, pushing a mission aside, aside is, is nothing. There's, there's probably a great deal more. But, but I've yet to obtain my file. I really should. Oh, I got it. Yeah. I got mine. I got mine. Um, Round up and got it. And it's quite interesting to find that the, the uh, secret for the Stasi's view of Dave Butler was that I just lied to Ice Cream 
all the time. <laughs> they're, they're reading pornographic magazines. Very accurate. Whilst not entirely accurate, <laughs> pornographic magazines, of course, were to give to us, you know, Mike, to give to Reggie's and people like anybody, you know, because they would tell you anything if you gave them a pornographic magazine to read because they never saw them anywhere, you know. Uh, but, but you're right. But what it did say, what it did tell to me, was that uh, certainly they had the means of taking, you know, um, pretty accurate photographs of the you know, with long lenses from some distance off. Um, and I remember with Folly Hall once, uh, down at the next thing I later, uh, at the ramp there, we were having a cup of coffee, and I looked out the right-hand window, and there was a, there was a guy lying by the side of the vehicle. Yeah. And I said to Colin behind me, hey, Colin, there's a, there's, there's a guy. We, we, our, our session at that time was that he was a deserter, because Colin just cracked the window and spoke to him in Russian, and the guy never moved. He was like a rabbit frozen in the headlights, you know. He never moved, he never said anything. And I said to him, yeah, we better move from here. One, he goes to run him over. And two, I don't like them being somebody being like that this close to the vehicle. So we went away, never came back and he'd gone. And our assessment at the time was that he was a deserter who, who deserted his unit and he was on the run. However, retrospectively, he could have been, uh, you know, KGB or, or spec snaps, you know, like Stephen experience where I know they, they managed to take what they were saying in the bit. Um, yeah. I, I, got, I got two funny little stories. And uh, I mean, we, 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 we've spoken about the, the coffee breaks we always had. I mean, we, we, we would generally take a coffee break um, in an area where we could see something that might be of interest, a major vehicle intersection, we expected convoys to pass or a rail junction or something. But, but, you know, when, when you had your coffee, you'd know, wind the window down, you'd stop in a good open area so that you couldn't be surprised. And just occasionally, it never happened to me, I'm happy to say, something would occur, and, you know, for example, you'd see Reggie's appear or you'd see a convoy start to come up the road. And, of course, the drill was then, you'd throw your coffee and, uh, and, and you'd go and get on, on task. Well, there's a famous story. I'm not sure who it happened to. Maybe somebody here can, uh, can, can say. Kit goes to cry. The guy throws his coffee out when he thinks it's an open window and it isn't. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but the other, the other funny thing, um, Dave mentioned ice cream. And the, the mats we carried, each of which you know, people had prepared for themselves, um, had no markings of any tactical significance. So should they fall into enemy hands, I use the term enemy in, in very commas, they, they gave nothing away about our knowledge of what, what happened and so on. But they did, for example, have, and, and it's been mentioned already, the self-placid, self-placid, place you put your tent. Um, and they had ice cream shops of particular uh, note and a description of railway crossings. So for example, whether they were lit or unlit, whether they were barriers or no barriers, and, and whether they um, they were manned. So, I mean, all, all these were important when you were considering something that you could sit for the evening listening to, to, to tapes, um, having your, your dinner while you waited for a train to pass. But the symbol for an ice cream was, as you might imagine, a little cool. And on one occasion, a map fell into the hands of the Russians, and they were convinced 
that we were showing nuclear explosions. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to be careful. Even the most innocent things um, can, can, can have a, a, a hidden meaning. Well, but I believe the other thing that we marked religiously, well, two other things we marked religiously on the maps were porcelain shops for the Air Force members. And, um, and places, bakeries that sold particularly good thin boiled, which is a, a, a very light shoe pastry with cream. Um, quite delicious. And I think these Germans did a lot of things very well. Just, uh, just not following people. Mm-hmm. But I think I'll, I'd, look, I'd like to bring your story in at that point. Um, the mission house itself, uh, you've seen lots of pictures over there. Neil's got every, I can't, I, Dave, you need to see this collection. It puts bricks, Mr. Shane, to be honest with you. I'm, even down to the record, even down to the beeper. I kid you not, honestly. Um, anyway, the mission house, it was, I can't remember how many bedrooms it was, but one of the, the mission, one of the, the uh, duties of mission uh, driver, yeah, you were, you were allowed to bring your family over. Okay. And on this occasion, you were allowed another pass. So I brought my brother over on this particular occasion. And uh, we would have our normal coffee and cake on the uh, overlooking the lovely lake and everything else, overlooking Sicilian off. And um, we went to bed that night. My brother was in the back bedroom, my wife and I and the children, blah, blah, blah. And uh, my brother come running in. He said, somebody's throwing teacups at a window. I said, don't be silly. I said, you've got these German police over the other, you know, they were literally facing the mission so they could book us in and out. Yeah, knew who was on tour at the time. Um, and uh, I said, no, don't be so silly. He said, I'm serious. He said, the cups that we were drinking out of, they literally they've come through the window. So I went out and uh, basically what happened is, yeah, uh, the East Germans and they were ex-NVA, National Volks Army uh, people. Yeah, they'd welded up the right-hand side of the Trabant and they'd hit the mission gate. Okay, escaped out the window, went into the mission house. Of course, the East Germans couldn't go in because it was deemed as Soviet property. I think I'm right in saying that. And uh, and basically, they were, you know, when, you, when you've got your brother there who's been, not been exposed to anything like that at all, yeah, in the DDR, okay, behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak. And uh, these three people were on their knees crying, yeah, and, and wanting sort of... Uh, you know, diplomatic community, of course, they, w- they wasn't going to get it. And we had to s- phone the Soviet external relations branch at the time. Uh, I think it was Captain Stropkin who came to actually uh, detain these three individuals. And uh, they were there on their on their knees crying. And they gave us as part and parcel, look, we've got all these documents. And they were, the, you know, their low-level t- training manuals that they had for the National Volks Army. Um, you know, just, just comes to show how, you know, a sieving being exposed to that incident, he, he never forgot, never forgot that. And yeah, also the mission out staff. I'm just going to pass the photograph around to you now. They were, I think I'm right, Corky, aren't they? Corky, yeah, I think uh, most of them were stouty or briefed by the stouty, weren't they? Well, I started bar tables in the mid, yeah, yeah. So they had bar tables. These photos are coming around there of the staff with some of us and then. Pots down the Satsusi there, but and the little, um, there's a lot of vehicle enthusiasts here, the little Volkswagen thing with it. Steve, uh, sorry, Cud was driving the night that the wall came down. I've just found uh, Steve's not here actually. Oh, Steve Harris is not here. There's a picture here of a uh, black and white one that's Steve on the course, 
when he was chasing me because we had to practice getting chased because our job was get away to escape. So we used to come back with wings missing, headlights missing, and they chopped trees down to try and capture us around railway sightings. If we went in after the French, then they were already annoyed like a load of bees in an eye because the French were ridiculous and used to have a barbecue or something stupid like that before. And then we'd come in and they'd think we were the same sort of Belkazan and soon find out that we actually knew what we were doing. And so Steve Harrison was chasing me on the course and that's a picture of it stuck in his little 432 there. He couldn't get, get, couldn't get through where my G-Wagging got through on the course at Ashford. It's a shame. So yeah, I'll keep that and send that to see. <laughs> I think yeah. some of the, the other thing worthy of note is the obviously squaddy humour, yeah, army and Ari. Ari <coughs> got a little bit of humour um, now and again. Anyway, long story short, it was uh, the first time in the mission house, and I don't know whether or not it was Mike uh, or no, it was Tim Townley actually, bless him. And um, I was you know, I was sort of having a cup of coffee uh, and a cake or whatever it was, and uh, <laughs> it's I'd say, what's that flower just yours? And Tim would say, all the flowers are bumped. And I was expecting, I was expecting all these flowers to be turning direction, all these tulips to be listening to you. And, and it was a well-known fact as well. I think I'm right in, in saying this, Corky, that the, uh, that it was bugged. It was heavily bugged, the mission house. Uh, and, and obviously, um, you know, those extra marital, not, not extra marital, sorry, the uh, marital business that goes on behind closed doors. You have to be very, very careful what you said to what you did. Knowing full well it would have been uh, not probably on film, but certainly on tape. Yeah. Well, but, but, but it was, you know, pretty much allies across the board. These um, days after the mission, five days after the mission, and one of the regional that one was to visit the Czech Republic and to help to keep off a particular building there. Uh, we, we took our lights along, myself and the guy that went. And funny like, of course, we, we'd been used to bugging at the various jobs that we had over the years. But this other poor chap, uh, his wife was picked up completely by the source. Uh, and at one point, we went into the control room uh, for the building. And of course, there's all the CCTV cameras up. And pointed out so that this is the room that we're sitting in tonight. And uh, those are all still alive. And my, my own wife's got less of some amount. She's all dead. Her attitude was, well, let's go on a piece of show for them. Well, I'm around there, man. My companion wife's absolutely horrified. I spent the whole night lining top of the bed. <laughs> so, just, just while we're talking on the subject of uh, buying and beaconing and so on, uh, I don't know whether it's been mentioned already. It, it, it would have occurred to people eventually that one good way of keeping track of the mission vehicles would be to put a beacon on them, um, so that you could, you could track them. And for that reason, uh, every time, I, I think I'm right in saying, and, and the, the, the guys can confirm this for me, every time the vehicles came back into the mission, uh, and back into West Berlin, part of the post-tour inspection was a very detailed examination of the undersides and all of the, the various voids to make sure that we had not been beaconed. Uh, because that clearly would have made the Russians' job much, much simpler. And, you know, that, that said, I experienced a tour, in, again, in the local area, um, on, on one occasion, uh, overnight, where we, we'd been given a hint that there, there were some pretty sensitive equipments coming into Sasko on the local sidings uh, for unloading. 
And try as we might, we, we could not get close to the sidings without picking up some sort of top tail. And, and these were not um, East German vehicles. These were Russian vehicles. They were ladders, and uh, they, they had Russian military planes on them. And we, we did our level best to shake them and, and succeeded on a couple of occasions, only to find an hour or so later that they were back behind us again. And, you know, I, I, we made a special report on that particular issue. And uh, there was never any conclusion reached, but it, it was a firm opinion of all three members of the crew, given the, the, the nature of the, the techniques we'd used to throw a tail, um, including you know, no lights, all the rest, and, and off-road, the fact that they kept picking us up suggested extremely strongly but they had another means of uh, of finding us, and we we never really got to the bottom of that. There was never any there was never any feedback from uh, from the authorities on that particular issue. But just going back to touring, and there are a couple of interesting little things that might not have come up yet. Um, things that told you there was equipment around. One of them was tracking, and, and when I say tracking, what I mean is armored vehicles when they pass down an asphalt roadway or a tarmac roadway, as you say in Europe. Uh, they leave a very distinct track mark. I mean, anybody who's been around construction will have seen bulldozers do the same. So tracking was always exciting. There was a particular smell to the, uh, the diesel fuel that the Russian vehicles used. Yeah. And you, you would be driving down a road, and all of a sudden, all three of you would look at one another and say, oh, soft fuel, soft gas. And you know, that again would tell you that, that either something had passed just in front of you or, or just gone by. Well, it probably hadn't got by because you'd have seen it. And uh, I'm trying to think there was, there was a third thing. Oh, yes. Talking about the NVA, the, the, the National Folk Army and, and their um, National Service period, one of the things we would see all the time when we were following vehicles, you know, just, just one or two vehicles with troops in the back, the, um, a lot of these Germans would have a roll of paper on which there were segments marked. And these tapes were made when they started their, their national service, with a date for each of the days of national service. And they'd tear one off every day, and as they got towards the end, they would very proudly show you the, uh, the sort of tail end of the tape, indicating with a broad smile on their face that they were coming to the end of their service. So just, just little things that stick in your mind. There's a couple of pictures just going around now that you just mentioned when they went to an NVA and they, they changed from the National Volks Army, which are a really professional army and really much more slicker at trying to catch us and spotting and chasing us off quicker than the Sobs. They were demoralized. They were getting bullied. The Sobs were demoralized, getting bullied. And some of the pictures that are coming around, you can see them doing PT in the clothes that they actually wear all day long. They're not like us. We go and get shorts and t-shirts on. They're, they're doing PT pulling themselves up on bars and things on those pictures that are coming around now. So they weren't treated very well, but the pictures that are coming around now has got the NBA with a berry, like we call it, helicopter pack. And when you've got a brand new berry and you can't shape it, it's all flat. It was the first day he wore this berry and he had his loose Bundeswehr uniform on um, at one of the local camps. And we just went up to the gate and just chatted to him and said, oh, I've got your new uniform. Oh, that's lovely. I can get a picture on that. And so you see him there. And saying, what, what do you think? And he's like, wasn't looking very full, much forward to it. Plus, you have to remember these Germans as well got, they only got two to one, didn't they? When 
we were changing black, black market money. We were, we were getting eight or nine to one when we went there. So we'd buy different things like called it hoovering. I actually wasn't a fan of hoovering. So they'd all be queuing up outside the shop. We could go to the front because we were privileged in some kind of way. Uh, I collected the Machotchka dogs you see over there. And um, that's a tenor, the big one. It's faded on the outside, brand new on the inside. And that, that was my thing for my daughter. Some of the people collected cow's ice binoculars, a pottery, mice and pottery, didn't it? Yeah. They all collected cotton, crystal. Yeah. So I really had something that they could do. When it wasn't busy, it wasn't a swan, but in between tours, you know, it'd be like, there's a bonus if you could do a bit of cultural stuff, if there was nothing happening. So it also gave the enemy. <laughs> The, the thing, the thing that we are, well, they're just going around that with ice creams and cakes and, yeah. and buying things, aren't they? Not really. It was actually as bad as you, as you read, um, living in the DDR. Um, one of the things that driver used to have to do is, um, first thing in the morning, half five, six o'clock is go to the bakery. Um, and you park your vehicle on double yellows, of course, no parking, uh, for all such a thing. And, uh, there'd be 30, 40 people waiting for bread. I mean, you got to, you know, this is in the sort of eight, you know, late seventies, eight eighties, sorry, uh, late eighties. And, uh, you did sometimes, you know, they, they, they looked down on you as though, you know, got new money, got no this. I mean, meat was luxury. You know, if you, you see 20, 30, 40, 50 people waiting outside butchers and you just go out there. One of the things that we used to have, uh, <laughs> and I remember because I'd never seen a black orange in all my life until I got, uh, there used to be a, a, the Soviet rations. Yeah. One of uh, part of the agreement was, is that we would provide the Soviets with rations and the, the, the Soviets would provide us with rations. But because we had all our rations came from West Berlin, of course, yeah, all the rations that were bought over, um, from the Russians. I seriously, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen fruit like it in my life. Yeah. I mean, there were black oranges and that. And it was Tony Hall, uh, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me sharing his name, but he was a warrant officer, um, and he got a typical Yorkshire accent and, uh, and dry sense of, dry sense of humor, bloody hell, not that again. In fact, when the, if he's Germans, uh, broke into the compound, the first thing it came down, he went blood, not another one. And, uh, you know, that was just, that was just Tony, but, uh, yeah. Well, we used to get fresh rations delivered because of the corridor thing. It was still going. So we'd get, I could get the fresh rations delivered, Riz. Riz. delivered to your door. So it comes in a basket and so you could order it. But when you were a duty driver, like, like Kev was uh, saying there, we had to chop the cow up. I don't know how to chop a cow up. <laughs> so I don't know what the best state is or the worst. So all you'd get, the castle. well, Wayne Fury, a guy called Wayne, Wayne knew how to chop it up. Didn't yeah, he? he did. Yeah. Cause he knew what battles to say. We never got that. He got that. Me <laughs> So we just chop it up and you just get it and you just go, what are you going to do with that? And you just end up boiling it. Helps. There's nothing else you could do. But that was one of the things that, that, that they had to do for us. But oh, I'm sure they got better rations from the Nafi in, in Bondo where Socksmiths were. Right. Well, we've been going as long as almost a Bricksmiths tour. <laughs> uh, but I think it would be great if we could just say thank you to all of our guests today for sharing these incredible stories it's been amazing i have learned so much today and i've been talking to you guys for for years but there were was stuff within that that i'd i'd never heard so absolutely fascinating and, and thank you Good. now i'm 
sure if you do have any other questions. Some of these guys are still going to be around and are keen to show off their memorabilia over there. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, thank you. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.